morning. Good to see everybody. Anybody forget about time change? Um, I just got here. <laughs> or a few minutes ago. Yeah, but it was because I had um, PowerPoint printer problems. Um, that's why. But we're here, right? And it's so good to be here. Lent. The season of Lent. How many of you know what that is? Okay, good. A lot of us do. Um, In my tradition in which I was raised, we didn't really give much credence to it. But Lent is essentially the 40 days leading up to Easter. And we're in Lent right now. And uh, I think it's just God's orchestrating it for us to really uh, get our minds and hearts wrapped around what this season is all about. So I'm just going to give you a little forewarning. I think Brandon did this last week. Uh, Today is just going to be on the dark side. Uh, We're going to be looking intently at the dark side, which is the bright side of the gospel. So let's step into Matthew 27. Our text today really is, is... it's so precious. It's so awesome. My fear this morning is that some of us have read or heard this story thousands of times that we've almost grown numb to it. Uh, so before I read this text, I want to ask you this question. What does the cross of Jesus, what is Jesus hanging on the cross mean to you right now? What does it mean to you? Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 27. I'm going to begin reading at verse 15. Now it was the governor's custom, that's Pilate, who is uh, the Roman governor ruling uh, Judea. It was the governor's custom at the feast. What feast is it? Passover unleavened bread, where they celebrate their great exodus, the redemption. At this feast to release a, prisoners, a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, by the way, here's one thing I want to say. When you see the word crowd, how many people are you envisioning? You should be picturing in the tens, twenties, thirties, forties, fifties. Okay, what happened the night before? It's their biggest celebration of the year. They had four glasses of wine. They stayed up, many of them, praying all night long. They're sleeping. They're sleeping, okay? There's just a few people. Okay, um, so when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had hurled, handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today because of a dream. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who's called Christ, Pilate asked. They answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. They shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, 
But that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd. He said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged, and he handed him over to be crucified. Next, the soldiers mocked Jesus. Next, uh, you read descriptions about the crucifixion. Um, Again, hopefully you'll read that this week, where there is more mockering going on by the chief priests, the elders. And now let's go to the death of Jesus. Verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that's from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said he's calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and he offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, Of course, that's when he said, it is finished. He gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn into two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Then came out of the tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, They were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. And I love this text. Many women were there. The men fled. The women stayed, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. This is God's word. You can be seated. The events that we just uh, read are, in and of themselves, quite sobering. And in one sense, Matthew goes into great detail here describing the horrific reality of Christ's death. But then, on the other hand, when you go to verses like verse 26 where it says, then Pilate released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and he handed Jesus over to be crucified. And that's all he says. I mean, he's, he's almost silent in his description of, of that horrific reality. And I agree. There's a sense in which we could get so caught up in the kind of death Jesus died and get so caught up in the horrific reality of it that we could miss the main point. I don't want to be that church. I also don't want to be that church that we can sit like theologians and talk about his death and and. and talk about the meaning of his death and go completely around 
what he did for us, how much he suffered for us. And I think it's appropriate today because we teach the meaning of Jesus' death every week. Today, I want to look at its reality. This might not be PG. I'll just warn you. Um, Now, to have an empire to rule the world, Rome needed methods of torture to instill fear in the people it ruled. So what you need to know is that Roman soldiers were trained. They were literally trained in the art of torture. A Roman scourge was implemented by the Romans to do just that. It wasn't there to kill the victim. And if a scourge then accompanied a crucifixion, it was done so to make the death a shorter one. Now this is what a scourge entailed. A scourge would be executed by someone called a carnifex. Carnifex in Latin is the word for butcher. First the victim would be stripped of all their clothing. Then they would position the victim on his knees and they would chain his hands to a post. And I have a PowerPoint of this. Mel Gibson in The Passion, I don't know what you think of the movie, but I'm going to tell you something. He did his historical research on this thing. He got it right. Um, that's the position. Now you can just uh, remove that slide now. The carnifix then would start with this thing called a flagellum. A flagellum was more than a whip because woven within the leather straps were iron balls, sharp pieces of stone, and and bones from animals. And so when this thing fell on a person's back, it would not only bruise them, but it would literally stick into their skin, and then it would be yanked, literally tearing the skin off the person's body. So the carnifix would start right up here at the neck, shoulder area, He'd begin working his way down, swinging this thing with such precision. He'd whip his way all the way down to a person's buttocks, sometimes even down the thigh and down the calves. He would not stop until the entire backside was destroyed. There's hardly any more skin. Sometimes they'd flip him over, so they could start working down the front side. And they were known to go for private parts. The goal of a scourge was to get a person one lash from death. And these guys were experts at this. Now let's read verse 26. And then they released Barabbas... But they had Jesus scourged, and they handed him over to be crucified. And it's in this condition, then, that you read verse 27. The governor's soldiers then took Jesus into the praetorium, and they gathered the whole company of soldiers around this. Literally, imagine hundreds of soldiers gathered around Jesus. 
They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns. They set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him. They mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff. They struck him on the head again and again. And they had mocked him. And they took off his robe. And then they put his own clothes on. And then they led him away to crucify him. Now, Roman crucifixion, you need to understand, is more than just an execution. This is human torture. So, when the chief priests and the temple leadership are shouting, crucify him, crucify him, they are not just shouting, kill him, kill him. They are also shouting, torture him, torture him. The nails in a crucifixion would go through the wrist because there's two bones that come together right here and it would find that spot right in the middle. They would then go in the side of the ankles. Because then of of how the person was positioned on the cross to breathe every time, they had to lift themselves up. So you're putting all that pressure on your ankles to push yourself up and all that pressure on your on your hands to also push yourself up. And then you take a breath and then you fall back in that position. Like most people that were crucified died um, of suffocation. That's why when they break their legs, they're dead men, because they can no longer pull themselves up to breathe. Now again, the Romans perfected this. A good crucifixion squad, and trust me, this was the goal a lot of times, could keep a victim alive on a cross for six whole days. For Jesus, it's six hours. It tells you how bad he was scourged. Now, I think there's a couple of other things that we need to know about a Roman crucifixion. The Romans would find the most public place for their crucifixions. Because their crucifixions were like billboards. How how many of you saw a billboard this morning? They wanted to put this out there for everyone to see, to say, you stand in our way, this is what we do. So imagine driving to church today and just seeing people hanging on crosses and the kind of effect it would have on you. Victims were also crucified naked Absolutely not a stitch of clothing. And this is something you need to know. They were crucified at eye level. I always pictured them high up on on, on something, kind of removed from it. Eye level. So when people are mocking him, it is face to face. Now the cross today for us, has just become a religious symbol. Many of you are wearing crosses. Uh, We see crosses. Crosses are are the thing that we, we, we put in our churches and on our steeples. In that day, the cross was a political symbol. It's the Roman instrument of death and torture. And so it's their symbol of humiliation, of shame, of defeat. I mean, it's literally their stake in the ground to say to the world, you lose, we win, we dominate you, we own you, we rule you. In fact, the the Latin word for cross is crux. Sophisticated Romans were uh, forbidden from using 
that word impolite company because crux in that day is a four-letter word. This day, to a Jew, it's the equivalent of the gas chamber. Because Romans crucified thousands upon thousands of Jews every year. In fact, there were literally times around the time of Christ when they ran out of wood because they were crucifying so many. But think about this. The central message of the church. We preach Christ crucified. We preach the Holocaust of Christ This is the gospel. With that word gospel, remember, the early church did not invent this word. Gospel was a technical term associated with the Caesars long before it was a biblical term. Gospel was the announcement of a world-changing event. Usually it was a great victory brought on by Caesar. Then Rome would send out its runners, its evangelists throughout the empire, and they would proclaim the gospel of Caesar, son of God. I want you to feel this. The early church took this four-letter word, And they had the audacity to say to the world, this is our gospel. This is our gospel. Christ crucified. Think of a four-letter word right now. I know, you're you're like at church, I'm not supposed to do that. Um, Think about our name at our church. Instill that word you're thinking about. Cruxroads. That's That's the audacity of what's going on. And and you have to ask yourself, then, how on earth is Christ crucified a world-changing event? How is the shame and weakness of the cross, how is that gospel? How is Jesus, through this ultimate symbol of defeat, achieving Ultimate victory. And I want you to know, this is not just the apostles' message. This is not just the early church's message. Christ crucified is God's stake in the world to say to the world, world, this is who I am, and this is what I do. Now, what does it mean? God gives us, through Matthew, four pictures in this text. And they are pictures to show us what this all means. The first picture actually is Barabbas. Look at verse 16. It says, at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Okay, this guy's famous. This guy's a condemned criminal. He's he's probably a zealot. And what you need to know about zealots is zealots were terrorists in that day. Except they're terrorists for the good guys. I mean, these guys had a Torah in one hand and a sword in the other hand. And they went to great lengths to pick off Romans. And the Jewish people loved them because they hated Rome. Now, maybe a modern-day equivalent would be maybe someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But what we need to see about Barabbas is that Barabbas is condemned by Rome to die. But look at verse 17. 
So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which do you want me to release to you? Which one do you want me to set free, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? I love this. Verse 20 says, but the chief priests, the elders, persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ, Pilate asked, crucify him. Do you see the picture here? Why does Barabbas go free? It's simple. Jesus is condemned in his place. Jesus stands in Barabbas' place. Jesus dies the death Barabbas deserved to die. And here's the deal today, whether you know this or not, Apart from Christ crucified, every single one of us is a captive. Every single one of us is a criminal. Every single one of us is a condemned prisoner. We are. We deserve death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death and that no one is righteous, not one. But Christ crucified is Jesus taking my place. Because Jesus not only lived the life that you and I were supposed to live, but Jesus dies the death that we deserve to die. And look at verse 42. I want you to see the irony of, of what they're saying. I mean, such truth is, is flowing out of these, uh, these chief priests' mouths when he says he saved others. He can't save himself. That's because God cannot save both Jesus and us. See, Christ on the cross is Christ getting our judgment day. This is what our judgment day looks like. This is what we deserve. In fact, this goes all the way back, I think, to the promise that God made with Abraham. I mean, God made this promise to Abraham. Remember, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And, and not only am I going to bless you, but I'm going to bless your family. And, and also, not just your family, but also through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the world. And Abraham said, well, I want proof of that. God says, okay, let's make an official covenant. I mean, today we shake hands, we sign on the dotted line, that's how we make a deal. But in that day, what they did is they'd bring a bunch of animals, they'd cut those animals in half, their blood then would flow in the middle, and then each party would pass through that blood to say, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I be like these animals, may I be cut to pieces. I love this because on this day, God came down. Jesus came down from heaven and he walked through that blood. And he didn't walk through it just once, but when it was Abraham's turn to walk, he says, Abraham, step aside. You can't walk through that because you walk through that. You're going to fail. I'm going to walk in your place. So that if you fail, if your descendants fail, it's on me. I'll pay for it with my blood. And I'm convinced Abraham walked away that day knowing that God just sentenced himself to die. 
And Jesus hanging on the cross is God keeping his promise to Abraham. This is God standing in Abraham's place. He's standing in our place because every single one of us have failed. We haven't kept the covenant. And like Barabbas, we are all condemned to die. In fact, does anybody know the, the, the meaning of Barabbas's name? You can see the word Abba there, right? What, what does Abba mean? Father, Bar is son. This is Abba's son. Abba's son. See, and God's son took our place on that cross so we could all be Abba's sons and daughters. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. That's the first picture. Second picture. Verse 45 From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, again, that's from 12 o'clock till 3 o'clock in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. Darkness. What does darkness in the Bible symbolize? Let's go back to the very beginning of the Bible. What's present before God creates the world? Chaos. The tohu vebohu was present with what? Darkness. And the tohu vebohu and the, and the darkness together formed this utter chaos and despair and meaninglessness. And God's first act of creation is to confront the darkness and he says, let there be light. And see, in that moment, the kingdom of heaven breaks in and God's rule brings shalom to chaos. Fast forward a little bit further. In the Exodus... Talk to me about darkness. It's the last plague that God unleashes before the great plague. And see, all God's plagues are are God's judgment. God is bringing uncreation to creation. Now, what follows the darkness in the Exodus story? Passover. The death of the firstborn. And through the death of the firstborn, or the substitute lamb, in the case of the Hebrews, God's people are redeemed and set free. Same thing is going on here. There's darkness. What follows? Passover. The death of the firstborn, God's one and only son, the substitutionary lamb. And from this comes what? We're free. The ultimate exodus. And see, this darkness provides a picture of all that Jesus is suffering because darkness in the Bible always symbolizes God's judgment. Joel 2, 1 and 2, Amos 5, uh, Zechariah, throughout it says, the day of the Lord, it's going to be dark. Darkness is going to cover the earth. In fact, I could not believe this text I found this week in Amos. Some of you probably know it's, have always known about it. I just found it this week. Amos 8 It says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth while it is still day. I will turn your feast. What feast are they celebrating? Passover. I'll turn your feast into a time of mourning. You're singing into weeping. You will wear funeral clothes. You will shave your heads, and you will show your sorrow as if your only son had died. How very bitter that day will be. 
I'm going to say, as bad as that crucifixion was, as bad as that scourging was, it pales in comparison to what Jesus is really suffering. For three hours, God unleashes judgment day on Jesus. I mean, if you were here this week, this is the cup that Brandon is talking about. Jesus is drinking the cup of all God's wrath for all sin. He's taking on hell. Hell. What's hell? Hell is not so much a place. Hell is to experience the utter absence of God. And there's not a person here. I don't care if, if, if you've had a hellish season to life or hellish moments, but none of that even begins to compare what it will be like when the lights go out. Because God's providence, his care, his love, his grace, it still envelops us. I don't care who you are or what you are. In fact, I love how Tim Keller puts this. He says, Let's suppose you were born underground and lived your whole life in a cave, never seen, seeing the sun. And then he says, and it was always 45 degrees. But that's pretty unpleasant. And then he says, and, and imagine then someone told you about the sun. But you disbelieve in the sun. You've never seen the sun, and, and therefore you don't believe in the sun. But he says, the only reason, even though you don't believe in the sun and are still alive, even though it's 45 degrees, is because of that sun. And if the sun were to go out in that moment, you would be turned to stone. That's hell. It's when the sun goes out. And for Jesus, he's not just venturing into some dark cave where it's 45 degrees. The sun just went out, and he is being cut off. God is turning his face. And I want you to think about this for a moment because up until this point, all Jesus has ever known from the very beginning of time is deep intimacy with the Father, the ecstasy and the joy of the Trinity, the dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, throughout all time, the Father has been pouring oceans of love into the Son. The Son has been pouring oceans of love into the Father. And now... It's gone. It's gone. And Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's he quoting? He's quoting Psalm 22. I'm going to leave that nugget on the table for you to take and eat this week, but I'll say this. Brenda Bennett, who uh, is married to Chuck Bennett, and they are our house church leaders. Um, about five years ago, Brenda was meeting with Libby, and they were doing Bible study and all of that, and Brenda just, she didn't believe. She wanted to believe. Her husband believed. So we decided to take him to Israel with us. And on the third day, she got up at dinner time and went back to her room, and we're just thinking, oh, shoot, this is probably the biggest mistake in the world. Like, this is probably overwhelming her. Anyway, to find out the next morning, she went back to her room. She got on her face. For three hours, she saw God. She said, God, I need to know if you're real. 
I need you to show yourself to me. I don't know if you're the God of the Jews. I don't know if you're God of the Christians. I don't know if you're God of the Muslims, but I want to know who you are. And she did one of these things and she just opened her Bible to Psalm 22 and read it for the first time. Read it this week and it will show you why she embraced Jesus that night. Now, because of uh, Jesus' relationship with his father, I mean, is so much more than anything we've had with God. You also have to understand that the, the hell that he's experienced, the absence of the father, is also that much more intense. Christ crucified is not only Jesus dying the death you and I deserve to die. He went to hell for us. And some of you today are still like wondering, does God love me? Does he love me? You think there's no way God could love me because you're looking at your life and you're looking at who you are and you're looking at the things you've done. But let me tell you something. Your, your, your problem, if that's where you are today, is not that you have too low of opinion of yourself, but you have way too low of an opinion of what Christ has done for you. He went to hell for you. He loves you that much. Third picture. Look at verse 51. Can someone just stand and read this? Verse 51. Love it. Thank you. What's the veil of the, the temple or the curtain in the temple? Does anybody know? Okay, let me show you a few things. First of all, let me show you the temple. Oh, I love this picture because this gives you a sense of how, how big it is. Uh, that is the temple plaza where everybody is. They uh, can only go, well, if you're a, a Gentile, you can only go so close to that wall. That's all the closer you can get. Um, what you're looking at there is the sanctuary. I'll talk about that in a second. To the right of the picture, you have the outer court. And then uh, right there, if you go across that wall, you'd be in the inner court. And then you would proceed up uh, to the sanctuary. And you can see maybe a little white billow of smoke going up. That's where the altar would be, and that's where all the sacrifices would take place. Okay, now let me take you inside the sanctuary. This is inside the sanctuary. The red back to the back is the veil. That is the veil, the curtain of the temple. In fact, it was, they say it was 12 inches thick, 60 feet high. Now, notice the text says, where does it tear? At the bottom or the top? The top, so it's not bottom to top, but it's top to bottom. In other words, this is an act of God. I want you to see the picture here because in the Jewish world, anytime a father would hear the tragic news, like the death of a son, they'd take their clothes and they'd rip them from top to bottom to show their anguish. You feel the anguish of the father? This isn't just the son suffering. This is the father who's offering up his son. He's anguished by this. Okay, but there's more to this. The space 
behind that curtain, this place right here that you see, you see the priests there. Only priests could come into this space. What's the space you see? The holy space, the holy place. Behind the curtain is called the holy of holies or the most holy place. The most holy place is whose space? It's God's space. In their minds, that's literally where God dwelled. His Shekinah glory was right past that curtain. No one was permitted behind that curtain. Because behind that curtain was the Garden of Eden. You can't probably see it, but on the curtain are the cherubim. What do the cherubim do in the Garden of Eden? You shall not pass, right? No one can go through it. You have to go through the sword to get into the garden. However, there's one day a year when someone actually went behind the veil. What day is that? Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. In fact, do you know what the term scapegoat is? Have you ever been a scapegoat? It's not fun. It's when you take the blame for someone else's sin. That's a scapegoat. In fact, the term comes from this day. Because on Yom Kippur, the sins of the people were laid upon the head of an innocent goat. The goat bore their sin. The goat was then led outside of the city to die. And this was the one day of the year where the most holy person, the high priest, could go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And he would go in there, and you know what he'd do? He'd stand before God as the people's representative, and he would intercede for them on behalf of their sin. Now, this is one of those dress rehearsals again (laughs) that rehearses Christ's coming because Jesus on the cross is the scapegoat. In fact, Hebrews tells us that he was taken outside the city to die and that all our sin, it was laid upon him. In fact, listen to Isaiah 53. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all, unjustly condemned. He was led away. He was struck down for the rebellion of my people. Yet he had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him. His life is made an offering for sin. And because of his experience, he made it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he bore all their sins. Jesus is also the one true high priest. He's not only uh, the scapegoat, but he's the high priest. Because right now, not only does he stand before God interceding for us, But his death, he became the temple sacrifice, tore down the curtain. And right now, right now, we all have access to this holy God in his Shekinah presence in our lives. If I listen to what Hebrews 10 says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened up a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed with pure water. I want to dance at that. That's awesome. (sighs) That's what we get. I mean, think about that temple. If 
you're a Gentile, you only get to the temple plaza, no further. If you're a woman, you only get to the outer court, no further. If you're a Jewish man, you get to make it to the inner court. If you're a priest, you actually get to go inside the sanctuary. But only one time a year could the most holy person enter the Holy of Holies. But Jesus, on the cross, fell on the cherubim's sword. So you and I get to go right into God. We get to go right in. Remember the first Passover? What followed the death of the firstborn? What splits in two? (laughs) The Red Sea. God's people pass through the Red Sea, right? And as they're passing through the Red Sea, you know what God's saying? He's saying, he's saying, fear not, stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. Do you know how the Lord's salvation sounds in Hebrew? See the Lord's Yeshua. <laughs> see the Lord's Jesus. And see, as they're passing through that, that, that thing that's been split open, uh, it's like they're passing through the birth canal again. They're being born again. God is saving them. He's redeeming them. And see, Jesus' death is unleashing this ultimate exodus. It's a way out of bondage. A way out of Egypt. But it's more than that. It's a way in. It's a way into him. And add Pentecost to this. And God comes into us. The holy of holies is in here. It's in us. God in us. I mean, David asked the question. He said, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And he answers his question. He says, only he who has clean hands and a clean heart. I'm going to tell you today, if you feel stained or you feel defiled, you feel dirty, you feel this, this, this need to be clean, listen, we've all soiled our lives, we've soiled our hearts, we've soiled our hands in different ways, but we have a great high priest. Listen to Hebrews 7, it says, Christ lives to intercede for us. And he does not need to offer sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he sacrificed for our sins once and for all when he offered himself. And because of that, we get to go right into God and God gets to come right into us. One last picture. And again, this is in verse 52. This blows me away. And it was already read. And I appreciate you, sir, for reading that. It said, Then the graves were opened, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Because Easter is coming, and we'll talk a lot about the resurrection, I just want to teach this right now. Jesus' resurrection did not achieve resurrection. His death did. Because the death of death is through the death of Christ. And this is what Christ crucified is accomplishing. Can someone go to Isaiah 20? I'll I'll read it. Isaiah 25, it says, In Jerusalem, the Lord of 
Heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for people of all the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. And he will remove the, the, the veil of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all the tears. In fact, you know, as Jesus is hanging on that cross, do you know what every Jew is about to celebrate? Passover has been celebrated. It's a feast of first fruits. Feast of first, first fruits will, will be celebrated on that Sunday. This is the day when the high priest goes into the fields and he harvests the first sheaves of the grain harvest. He takes that into the temple and he just he waves it before the Lord to say, God, as we anticipate this great harvest, we praise you and thank you that you bring life out of the earth. Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat goes into the ground, it remains a single seed. But if it goes into the ground and it dies, it will bear much fruit. Listen, Jesus didn't die. Jesus was planted. He is then the first fruits of life from the earth. And there is a great harvest yet to come. And Paul in Philippians 3 says, I want to know Christ and I want to know the power of the resurrection. And see, so many Christians, we, we, we stop there, but Paul doesn't because Paul knows he can't stop there because he knows to truly know Christ, to truly know the power of the resurrection, he needs fellowship with Christ's sufferings. In fact, that word fellowship there is the word koinonia. Koinonia means intimate oneness. Sometimes it's the word that's used for sexual union because Paul is saying, I want to be that intimate with Christ's sufferings. I want my life to be enveloped with it because it's in that place where I get to know him and experience the power of his resurrection. And see, this doesn't mean that we have to go out and look for suffering because to live is to suffer. And right now, all of us have our little crosses that we bear. And you know what those are in your life. I know what those are in my life right now. And those little crosses, as difficult as they are to bear, these are the very places where we're going to find Christ and experience the power of a resurrection. Like, look at this centurion in our story. I mean, here's a guy who saw death every single day, but for some reason, the death of Christ caused him to say, truly, this man was the son of God. Why did he say that about Jesus' death? Because he saw how Jesus died and what Christ's death was achieving. This wasn't a defeat. This was a victory. And because of that, we can all look at our little crosses and know that they're not going to defeat us, and they don't need to bring us to a place of despair because we get to see our little crosses in light of the great cross. And we know his cross achieved something beautiful and ended in a resurrection. In Chicago, there's a church with uh, this image on it. I used to love it. I used to love to walk past it. That image is 20 feet high. On the bottom are words. Does this mean anything to you, to all you who pass by? Does it mean anything to you? Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. 
And we sing Christ crucified. And we trust in a Christ crucified. And we worship Christ crucified. And we live Christ crucified. And when we push that into our lives, what comes out is resurrection. Let's pray. And God, as we get ready to take communion, I can't help but think of Jesus' words. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Eat and drink it. And you also said, Jesus, that we are not to cast pearls before swine. In other words, something so precious if this hasn't been made precious to our own hearts and to our own lives, may we refrain today, Lord, from drinking and eating. But for those of us today that this is our life, may we eat and drink and be satisfied in Jesus' name.